Welcome to the Gold Digger podcast series, a series that investigates the mysterious decline of Australian Rugby Union. It's a fan's journey into the void to pick up the pieces of Australian Rugby Union and find a path forward to fortune and glory. I'm your host and humble rugby servant, Matt Durrett, and here we are. Another week has gone by of Super Rugby AU, and in fact, the first week of Super Rugby Ataroa, which is very exciting because it now means that for rugby fans, you can watch pretty much back-to-back rugby, especially when you include the Six Nations competitions and any other competitions, club competitions you might be watching. Um, I might just make the point, uh, I'm not going to be a week-in, week-out match review type podcast. There's a lot of other really great podcasts at the moment that are doing that, certainly in Australia. So I don't really want to, I don't feel the need to compete with them probably because I don't think I can compete with them. They're very knowledgeable, and I listen to them all the time to try and stay informed. But, you know, I might touch on, you know, things that happen week to week, but it's not going to be an all-encompassing match review type of show. With that said, there is some interesting stuff to discuss. Uh, There's also apparently another podcast that is about to come out looking at the fall of Australian rugby. It's by the Australian Newspaper. And it appears as though they've, you know, spoken to some very interesting people, people who are knowledgeable in the game. Uh, I don't know what their their angle is. I suspect it's a bit like mine, just trying to sort of pick up the pieces of what's happened in the last two decades. Uh, always, always good to get a bit of fresh competition. Um, and I, I encourage anyone to listen to it. I certainly will. Uh, I think the more people talking about the game, positive, negative, it doesn't matter. It's there for everyone to digest, think about. And then you form your own opinion. So, you know, good to see as the season's starting that I think people are talking about rugby again. And, and hopefully, as the year unfolds, things are going to develop and, and, and there will be progress. Uh, two weeks in, Super Rugby AU, you know, something for everyone. Brumbies and Reds obviously looking pretty consistent. I thought the force started well. I'm hoping that they can finish off games, uh, notch up a few Ws this year. Rebels... Well, they, they appear to be pretty strong. They've obviously got some good players, their, their Wallabies especially, but are they going to trouble anyone? And then the Waratahs, which unfortunately if you watched this week's game, uh, you would have seen uh, probably a contest that really wasn't for the benefit of, of many. Uh, I think the Brumbies obviously look fantastic, but the Waratahs just, you know, it's, it's boys against men. And I think there's a much deeper conversation that we can have around where New South, rugby, New South Wales rugby is at. And it's on this theme that I want to jump into today's episode. It's picking up from a couple of episodes ago where we looked at player talent and we examined that pathway that players in Australia go from teenage level rugby to, to adulthood. And the person who I've spoken to actually reached out to me uh, on having, having listened to the pod. His name's Johnny McMurtry. He lives in Queensland, but he's originally from Ireland. And he played in the UK and then moved to Australia and has been coaching in clubs and schools for the last 12 years. He spent time working as a coach, but in recent years, he's actually devoted time researching rugby age grade systems at both schoolboy and Colts levels, and has also been doing some work with the Queensland Reds Junior Development Academy. Um, More recently, he's conducted this study with the approval of Rugby Australia into the motivations of rugby players who were part of Super Rugby Academies. And the subjects of the study were actually all in the academy at the time that he conducted it. And most of them are now playing in 
one of our five super rugby teams today. So it's very, very relevant. He approached me and after listening to the podcast, he wanted to share what he'd been researching and I'm more than happy to have him on. As I said, I think his recent experience is very sound and his work is extremely pertinent to the subject of the development of our emerging professional rugby players. Thanks for, for joining me, Johnny. Um, look, for, I guess to start things off, could you tell me a bit about your background in rugby and, and how you first yeah. got into the game? Yep, yeah, look, um, I think pretty much like everyone you've spoken to, um, you know, I mean, had a love of the game from fairly early on, played it, um, as you can tell by the accident, played it uh, mostly in Ireland to start off with, uh, then was fortunate to go to Wales, uh, went to Cardiff, studied in Cardiff in probably one of the more prevalent sporting universities in what used to be York or now Cardiff Met it's called so that was probably my first look into what we would call sort of high performance rugby so I was involved fortunate enough to be involved in Ulster provincial teams under 16 under 18 and but the, you know going to Wales and again in that hotbed that is Welsh culture where you know you can't throw a stone without hitting someone in a in a Wales jersey or something like that so um that was probably my first look into and really embraced you know my love of the game um uh, after studying in Wales did a bit of traveling was fortunate enough to play in New Zealand um spent about a year and a half in Rotorua playing a bit of rugby there and just in the backpacking thing while I was doing it um before finally getting a job within the mining industry in Australia um, and that's when I started more to look down the lines. I was, you know, I mean, married, getting older, and, and whatever. Yeah. And I even tiptoed around my wife and said, "Oh well, maybe I want to play again." And she was actually the one. Well, hold on, let's let's actually catch <laughs> ourselves on here. How about you know, I mean, you you have a go at coaching. You know, uh, young son, he was getting interested in it as well. Um, one thing led to another. I started coaching uh, the local team. Started off at Logan Saints. Uh, been involved in a few teams around Brisbane, but. Then was fortunate enough to get involved in what was the the Junior Reds Academy, Junior Gold Squad, um, right. so the age grade programs within Australia. Um, so yeah, that that the what was going to be playing rugby one day a week turned into coaching five or six days a week. So that sort of backfired on the wife anyway. I only really started coaching when I came to Australia. Um, what year? Sorry, what year are we talking about uh, coaching? When did the coaching oh, start? So I started coaching probably. I think it must have been about two thousand and. 2007-2008 would have been around then so yeah as I said I coached um, all, predominantly coached the age grade so I started coaching an under 16s under 17s team uh, mostly of Colts uh, coached Colts teams so the uh, under 19s under 20 age grade around um, around Brisbane uh, but have coached uh, some senior teams and even you know the very junior teams um, so had that sort of wide spectrum of, of you know <laughs> of coaching and as I say everyone understands the real coaching happens at under fives under sixes and whatever trying to trying to you know hurt hurt a bunch of cats essentially mm-hmm. um so yeah that it was it started off 2008 was really and as i say i think it was around the same year 2008 2009 i got involved in what was the junior reds academy uh, and the high performance programs within australia um so i've taken a few years off so um f- finished up coaching there at uq a few years ago uh to mm. focus on my research or finish off my research i should say um just to get that that, that bit of time that i've got all the data collected it's just editing and and, and putting it out and since then I've, I'm, I'm going to roll on to a phd next year looking at a very similar subject at this stage so were there any queensland reds we might know who were in the academy at that time when you had started 
Um, oh, th- look, I'm fairly certain there was. Um, like even in the junior gold, you know, I mean, squads and whatever that I coached. Um, like the last one I coached, um, the likes of Reese Van Neck, who's now with the the Rebels. Um, he was he was part of the squad again, a great kid coach. Uh, Tom O'Toole. Um, he was actually part of the junior gold squad, who's now in the Irish, uh, senior squad. Um, and as I say, there was a few other players involved in the under 17. Those fellas jump out the mind as well. But I would say, yeah, especially in the junior gold squad, when it's coming to those later ages and again, it's when they're further down the pathway, if we want to call it. Yeah, there mm-hmm. certainly was, you know, I mean, quite a few wallabies. And, and even in my research now, uh, like a large portion of the fellas that were questioned within my research, I would say, you know, about 50%, 60% of the fellas who have come through that academy stages are now involved in senior squads or got senior contracts as well. So, so yeah, look, a lot of um, even in those junior reds days, and what uh, you know, I can recognise and remember some fellas like uh, Jake Strawn, who's now involved with the force. Um, there's a few other players that I remember coaching, even even at, uh, across the club land. You know, involved in UQ. I mean, you talk the likes of uh, Jock Campbell, one of the UQ squads that year. We had, oh, you could go right through Shambui, Conor Maroney. Um, Alex Horn, you know, a lot of you know, I mean, strong age grade players who are still yeah. somewhat involved in the game. So, um, yeah, you know, as I say, again, access and certainly uh, uh, involved with some players who, uh, across all these years and age grades, and and again, that sort of gave me this this question of you know, I mean, how or why are these fellas almost not dropping away? It's still involved in rugby, but you know, why why aren't the Wallabies or Rugby Australia in particular sort of grabbing hold of these talent and having a bigger or wider talent pool or, or access to, you know, I mean, a, a wider range or type of player, um, mm. or, you know, how they're being lost within this system essentially. So, so yeah. Yeah. So, you know, look, the, the, the paper you put together and, and this is something mm-hmm. you've been working on for the last few years, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously, it seems very relevant, certainly in the last episode where we looked at player pathways and juniors coming through and then, players who are getting developed and then either moving around or just dropping out or leaving overseas mm-hmm. this is really why I wanted to talk to you because it just seems like a very very relevant paper but what is the paper about but also what is the background and, and what led to you deciding to 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 do this research yeah I felt like um like I think we were talking before that I, I had a son yeah I mean who was involved in rugby he was doing like he was a you know I mean a very reasonable club player um he joined one of the local teams in Brisbane um, and I think it was under 12s, maybe under 13s or something like that. And they started their pre-season in, I want to say, about October or November. Um, so very early pre-season, very zealous coaching. Uh, and he just dropped out. It just wasn't for him. you know. And, and again, he was a keen rugby player. Um, so I, I had a look at it and even asked a few of his friends. And I just I felt like there was almost a, listen, a missing piece. You know, it's just something that where these kids were, we weren't engaging them in a manner that they felt you know that that just it was the game was not relatable to them based on the way we were coaching um so look i I wanted to step away i was doing i was already doing my um grad dip in sports coaching at university of queensland uh so i was fortunate enough to speak to my now advisors um stephen rimcliffe mallet uh spoke to them and just said well look this you know i mean there's something missing here so so they supported me started this research research paper now um so what i was trying to find out is the overarching question i was just trying to find out why um age group players are involved in the sport to then hopefully answer the question of why they might drop out or, or what we're not offering them maybe in the latter stages of their age grade or or that transition into adult rugby. Um, 
so we grabbed a, a framework, uh, went to Rugby Australia, they were extremely supportive of it. Um, you know, the likes of Adrian Thompson and um, Michael Grice, and there, uh, Jason Brewer, who's now based in, uh, based in Japan, um, extremely supportive of it. Um, and initially I thought I was going to be asking maybe one of the franchises, but they gave me access to, it was all five franchises at that stage, including the Force, uh, to, to question all the under 20 players of yeah it was put to them in, in a survey monkey survey just to try and gather up all the data we could of um, what they're typically trying to achieve when they play rugby and what they're typically trying to achieve away from rugby so it, it just to, to paint a, a much fuller and rounded picture um, of these players um, so say so the data was gathered about two or three years ago so it really gives a good snapshot of the players who were involved in like like i mentioned before many are, yeah. of which who have full full-time contracts now and again it was conflicting initially because um it was very um individualized or very um it wasn't it wasn't a collective focus they were they were there for very um individualized uh, personal goals and targets mm. um like when i presented this research to some of the coaches involved in the super programs they were a bit distraught because there was no talk of winning premierships winning flags that collective unity goal it was very in yeah you know, I mean it was very internally focused and very intrinsically driven, um which initially for me as I said I was like well that doesn't feel like rugby for me but, but then it, it was it was good to then sort of grab the data and have a review of it and and contrast it against other sports data yeah you know, there's another in particular paper by um a researcher based in America called Amanda Vizek, um she looked at um. Uh, players uh, soccer players this was in america from 10 to 20 or 19 years of age mm. and again how they determined and defined fun was um trying hard positive encouraging coaching um setting and achieving goals so the sort of uh happiness goals that the players were presenting was away from rugby it was like they were mm. stepping into rugby within this almost bubble they were coming there to to do a job in inverted commas if that makes sense i touched upon it with rugby reg in my last episode where we talked about the the younger players having sort of real focuses on being being professional and i think through my process when i've spoken with you know people who are coaches and involved in rugby to some degree they've made the same observations where they said you know kids especially at the gps schools and who are playing schoolboy and they've representative football there is this overwhelming sense that they are they're playing to become a professional player. They're, they're basically playing to create a career as opposed to perhaps years gone by where, you know, you got selected for your rep team and you just sort of, you know, hopefully, you know, things maybe moved forward and, and professionalism was perhaps something that might happen along the way. So it doesn't seem unusual that kids as young as 15, 16 who are any good and are probably getting mm. offered maybe contracts from, you know, either academies or, or even other codes have now mm. got this notion of I, of indivi- this individual mindset to be successful and that contracts and you know a professional pathway mm. by the time I leave school is, is the goal is the aim. Oh, and and you're so right at the end of the day. And there's 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 so many factors that play into this as well. As you said, you know, even right down to um, I was talking to the other fellas there the other day. The lifestyle change, as you said, you know, I mean, without showing my age, you know, I mean, I certainly grew up in, in an era where you you would just continually play. You play touch. You play soccer. You play. Yeah, you know, always always be playing and whatever. Whereas 
now the, the, the focus and the level of um, involvement and importance of organized sport um, as I said, like you look at the school-based players, you know the GPS players. You know, what, if they're getting close to the first fifteen sort of age grade, you know, sixteen A's onwards, you know, they're not allowed to be involved in certain sports or other sports as well in case of injury. And mm. there's a large focus on that physical development and and even to some extent mental development, where you know the focus is on attaining that. You know, I mean that that GPS first, you know, I mean first fifteen flag or something. So um. The, you know, the average 20-year-old player now would not have a clue of what the amateur game, you know what I mean, what mm. the game looked like without it being professional. As you say, you know yeah. I mean, people, people, you know I mean, signing up to, to, you know, to play rugby just solely for fun with no real, as you said, you, you, you might be lucky enough to get a representative shirt, be it a Queensland or, you know I mean, shirt mm. or whatever it might have been. You might have been forced to go on, you know I mean, a couple of tours, be it uh, the New South Wales or whatever it might have been, but that that would have been the height of it, you know. Um, yeah. Like, my my son, you know, I mean, he he's got quite a few doctors and whatever who ex wallabies, you know, again, and they they were involved in the game. They they stayed involved in the game for you know, many years. Again, for that social aspect, for that outlet, you know, as they were talking, mm. that they, they obviously had it, you know, I mean, quite a full on working week, you know, 60, 70 hours worth of work, you know, during the week, and then they would play, you know, train on a Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, you know, at a highly competitive level. But that was their. Mm outlet that was their social outlet as you said that's 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 massively changed it's now you know the players look for the social aspect the enjoyment aspect seemingly elsewhere but they do enjoy that you know that athletic challenge that personal challenge that they set within themselves and 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 by coaches and other people involved in it um i guess it's just that murkiness of the water that we you know i mean we've somewhat discussed of when the third party comes into it so whether it be parents yeah, to old boys, you know, even other players or things like that, which put additional pressure on to certain players to, to, you know, I mean, push themselves to that next level in inverted commas. That that's when all of a sudden maybe the enjoyment comes out of it. Maybe, yeah, it, it's just it doesn't represent. You know, I mean, for the case of my son, yeah, you know, it doesn't represent the game that, or or how they perceive the game to be. Um, and as you said, sucks somewhat sucks the enjoyment out of it because yeah, it it's not relating to the goals that they're setting to themselves as an example. So mm, yeah, some of these players who would have obviously had very individual focuses, mm-hmm. do you think that was indicative of the fact that they were in an academy system as opposed to a year or two earlier when, you, if you ask them the set of questions when they're in year twelve, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. going to be all about I want to. You know, I want the team to win a flag. I want to, you know, to be the best school. You know, it, it might be a little more collective, and whether that would mm-hmm. also change once they get into a a team and start becoming part of the culture that is created by the uh, the, the coaches and, and all these other people. Yeah, it's a great, great question because um, look, and we tried to answer some of um, some around that. So we did ask them twice. Um, so we asked uh, the survey questions were asked both in the competitive stage of the season, so when yep. they were actually playing that Super Twenty franchise, and then later on in the season. So like when they returned back to Shoot Shields, you know, Queensland Premier Cup or whatever it might have been, just to try and see if there was a difference in how they um sort of viewed their rugby or how they you know how they treated mm-hmm. you know themselves and the people around them when they were in rugby the 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 trends were fairly the same but again tiptoeing on what you're looking at like i did try and break it down to because there was the players that were involved in the program were both you know 18 19 and 20 years of age 
interestingly pretty much what you're saying is like when the fellows had just stepped into the academy um program so 18 years of age they were really trying to uh, put themselves in the shop window and trying to sort of you know wave the hands to the coaches again it was more trying to uh, essentially make a name for themselves or, or or set that status it's actually when the fellows have matured or they're in the program slightly later so pretty much all the 20 year olds as an example it was less focused on on the coaches less focused on the status more focused on their individualized goals and again that could be for a number of reasons maybe they're you know as i said they're, they're just they gathered that self-confidence they've been in the program for a few years they know their expectations and or they're aware of how the contract you know they, they may already have a contract and or know they're not going to get a contract so they're just um they're, they're happy you know they're, they're they're satisfied with the level they're playing at um yeah. but yeah look there, there definitely was like you're like you're saying there definitely was a shift in perspective towards rugby involvement coming from that school environment to mm. you know later on in that academy system um, and look i've seen it a lot within the Colts circles as well um it, it, it again you can see the fellows who have stepped straight from school into the cult system because there's this massive um dependency on on the, the you know i mean waiting to be prescribed told what to do obviously very regimented and yes. you know, I mean, uh, you're tr- you, you want to treat them as adults you know you're they're stepping into a lot of these fellas uh, again depending on which club you're at you, you get a, a wide range of fellas who are involved in you know study jobs apprenticeships and whatever so you wanted to give them look they're choosing to be here you know they have the freedom mm. at the end of the day they're not forced to play not not even to per se that they're forced to play in school but it's certainly more there's more expectations of them to be involved in organized sport than it would be at school but again yeah. uh, myself and a lot of the other code switches i've been involved with and, and and spoken with you know about this research as well is we're trying to offer them that independence and autonomy um because they're choosing to be here you know at the end of the day mm. it's 2021 they could you know find weird and wonderful ways to entertain themselves as opposed to turning up to you know i mean sometimes a cold wet you know i mean pitching a tuesday thursday night uh yeah. you know making this commitment long term but yeah it's still it's still a bit of a struggle it's still uh, um yeah we're still getting these you know i mean type of players exiting school where it's been so prescribed and rigid for so many years that yeah that they're almost standing waiting and having this level of expectation um and you mm. could see that in some of the answers and some of the data that was offered as say a couple of years ago certainly with the younger players within the academy yeah well, what really interests me about the work you're doing is that I think there is this belief in Australia that if we have strong participation, we have good, strong schools and juniors and clubs, that that will just sort of naturally coalesce and push all the talent and the cream just rises to the top and then that, that just happens and then you focus on the cream once it's there. But, mm-hmm. you know, these transitions between school and club or, um, you know, a club and an academy or then, you know, going from an academy to becoming a professional footballer, like, they're pretty crucial steps in a, anyone's development. This is an area that I think is so crucial because it just feels like no one has really examined this in, into the, the detail that you've done. Are you hoping to, I guess, present this, some of your findings to Rugby Australia, but also sort of continue this development and perhaps, you know, make it a sort of an ongoing thing so you can then start comparing you know, data from sort of two, three years ago to the data of today and, and moving forward? 
Yeah, essentially, yeah, I, I would like to, um, like I spoke about before, I'd like to extend this research. And, and, and again, my, my, my focus is, like, I love rugby. Rugby's my, um, obviously, go-to sport and whatever. Um, but again, I guess adolescent sport uh, or adolescent involvement in sport is predominantly what I'd focus on. Though. Um, mm. Rugby Australia is aware of the findings. They do have some of the findings. And again, I, I, I think Rugby Australia is playing um, the best game with the hand they've got um yeah like you look across the globe and whatever and, and as i say look it rugby union sadly is sliding down the scale pretty much in, you know i mean on country to country bar the likes of new zealand wales um where you know i mean it's pretty much it's pretty much religion and whatever um but um yeah look, the, the data is out there the rugby australia is aware but i have presented to some of the coaches um i guess again they're just like i said they're just they're managing with what they've got and the access and the resources they've got in a utopian world absolutely we would just encourage players to go play for the local club the best players would get better we'd have this much wider pool of players which would feed into the you know the representative and wallabies uh, as an ideal but sadly as i say you know, people get into you know people get into players ears you have that's when the gps system starts off and grab players and poach players so you might have you know a player who's played for under 12 13 15 a's and then all of a sudden a player comes from nowhere and you know they're crestfallen and it's you, you you lose this player again my big thing that i try and tell coaches and people i talk to about this research is you may not be coaching the next wallaby but you could be coaching the next coach manager sponsor it's trying to keep them involved in the game so yeah. you want to keep them involved in the game as well because you do have these late bloomers you do have these people here you know all of a sudden as i said we've seen quite a few of them and even in the um in the red squad you know you've got the prop whose name escapes me like the likes of jock campbell for the reds as say he mm. played colts too at uq and then it, it has progressed through stuck with it and um has, has progressed through uq into the nrc and now you know i mean a mainstay in the red squad um so that's it's it's making sure that we can we don't keep these players at, at length or or, or and, and the rugby street is very good at saying you can enter and exit the pathway as many times as you want at any points as you want mm. which is great and fair and and do believe it with the likes of the nrc they've certainly created more opportunities in the the junior nrc as well but it's the third parties that then say as you said you might have certain coaches certain parents certain you know ex-players or whatever it might be who go if you don't make it by this stage you're not going to make it and, yeah. and that just yeah that exhausts and limits you know i mean that that talent pool and, and that's when like i listened to one of the episodes before you talk about the average age of player has you know i mean massively decreased because like you mentioned before they they concentrate on this rugby becoming a career so that's a sense of identity so for them to fulfill that then they go to england they go to you know i mean where japan wherever it might be to try and build up that uh, or, or or fulfill that sense of identity that's been manufactured around them as opposed to focusing on well i enjoy the game i enjoy you know i mean where i'm playing how i'm playing even the style of play and um, because again that's that's what 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 escapes fellas is as you said you know, i mean there's the focus on becoming a professional rugby player whatever that looks like whether it's going to play you know i mean in some sort of cow field in in ireland where you get you know, 100 pounds for, for, per game or something like that you, you know technically you are getting paid to play but it's a different style, different nature, different uh, expectations of rugby based on you know, compared to what you 
what you're setting up for yourself in Australia. So, so yeah, look, uh, the, the, the information is there. Rugby Australia are aware of it. They've, the, again, they've been very supportive, very good um, in using or, or reflecting certainly on the data. Um, I just think there could be improvements. And if there was, again, some recommendations on what I wanted to do to, um, to Rugby Australia was to offer ideas of, yeah, the coach education were very uh, prescribed and a lot of coaches want that technical tactical data but then they forget about you know if they don't actually coach where their feet are they forget about the person who's standing in front of them and don't ask questions of why they're involved actually in the sport so again you might you might have your first 15 player who's just doing it as you said because he's got you know i mean four or five other mates who are in first 15 but doesn't actually want to push it on to the next stage or you could have that second 15 player who is going to be a late bloomer who's going to have that last testosterone hit and Mm. and and actually you know he's he's committed to the game long term so it's understanding who needs what and and what motivations these players are involved in so so that's really i mean what my research was about i was trying to find that overarching theme which we found but then also give coaches tactics and techniques on how to ask the right questions to keep these fellas involved in the game for longer, essentially. So, yeah. Barry Honan, who who I had on a previous episode, former Wallaby, who's done a lot of development and coaching over his, his career, his, his post-playing career. You know, he made a great point where he said, you know, you know where you've, you know as a coach whether you've had a good season not if you win, but when players return and come back yep. next year, because obviously mm-hmm. they've had fun or there's something that's in it for them. Do you think that there is just too much of a focus on winning at, at schoolboy level? Uh, short answer, yes. And not even just at school level, club level, uh, junior club level as well. And mm-hmm. um, there is, and again, that, that's where it, it's, you know, and, and there's coaches that I know and have coached with who, you know, I mean, deem themselves as a failure if they don't win on Saturday or Sunday. When yeah. again, that's that's you know, you're coaching anywhere between six to sixteen year olds, really. As you said, the the only thing you want to do is keep them engaged and involved in the game. Like I say, I remember coaching down at Logan, and um, we had a lot of fringe players who sort of drift in and out. But I would always try and give everyone game time. Again, you know, that that's because for me that was just important. Like if they commit themselves to training, commit themselves to turn up on a Sunday and play the game, who am I to kill off, as I say, you know what I mean, they, they, again, they, they may not be the next Wallaby or anything like that, but who am I to kill off the the level of interest and involvement that they've had with it by not giving them some game time, as an example. So, yeah. as you said, that it, like, there's, I'm sure most coaches will appreciate more a beer with a, um, a fellow that they coached 20 years ago who remembers, you know what I mean, what uh, giving them a run and what they did on a Tuesday, Thursday throughout the season, as I say, and they're still involved in the game, um, mm. as opposed to you know, I mean, an under six, you know, I mean, C team premier, you know, I mean, medallion or something like that. That's just it is a the big thing for me, and, uh, and quite a few coaches say this, especially in Europe, is you know, they don't necessarily remember what you say, but they remember how you make them feel. So, as you yeah. said, you know, based, based on you know, what Barry was talking about there before, it's it's trying to engage them on a level where they can sort of relate and reciprocate to and they want to stay involved in the game based on the relationship and based on the interactions that you offer them. The most obvious example for me and look I coached a junior team quite a few years ago now it was when I'd left school and I went back and coached my own school and actually it was great because I had the same group of kids three years in a row so I got to watch them develop and one of the biggest things I used to struggle with was 
you know, we were obviously trying to win games. You'd pick your best 15, but, you know, there's five or six kids on the sideline that all want to get on. And it's a critical point in the game that, you know, there's a try in it or whatever it is. And, you know, do you start using your bench who are probably not the best players and mm. to give everyone a go? And it was that, you know, and I, my goal was always to get everyone some game time, even if it was only half of a half or 10 minutes mm. or whatever it might be. But, um, you know, it was difficult because you are in two minds. Are we... Are we wanting participation and getting everyone feeling good despite losing? Or do we want to try and win? And obviously the euphoria of that win will, will be shared by all the team, even if one or two players didn't take on the field. And it's really tough decisions to make. And I can only imagine that that's amplified at a GPS mm. school where there's so much mm. pressure to win and get a flag. And you've got, you know, really hard choices to decide between players in certain positions or, or, or mm. choosing replacements. Yeah. Oh, look, and absolutely. And again, as I'm, I'm not being naive or, or flippant when I say, you know, I, I try to give a lot of people, you know, that game time, whatever, because yeah, they have put that effort in. But the other way I looked at it and, and spoke to my manager about it as well is we, we don't know necessarily when we'll need this player. So again, yeah, and, and they might give us glimpses or the, you know, this 10 minutes here or there might actually, you know, propel them on or, or give them a bit of encouragement or motivation for the next, for the next game or the next level. So, so yeah, I, I understand fully where you're coming from. And again, as you said, that's amplified so much. Um, I've never coached, you know, as a GPS versus teen or, 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 or high, you know, I mean, high level within schools and whatever, but you hear and speak to people involved in it and whatever. And as I said, the, that expectations, especially the volume of money that's put into it, the old boys that are around it, the, you know, I mean, the, the number of people that turn up to the games as an example as well. Um, yeah, it, it's just taken to that extra level as well. So um yeah it's yeah extremely difficult to navigate um but yes yeah, again it's just how can that be managed and, and how can we manage those players as well you know i mean they must be what i can only imagine is and i'd love to talk to them a bit more about it is yeah, that emotional exhaustion or or at the end of the season or or at the end of the first 15 you know when when they exit school you know and maybe that is why there's this level of detachment you know they've they've gone from being a big fish in a little pond to all of a sudden they're being pushed into nearly senior rugby as an example mm. um and it's a very much more you know they have to be self-motivated they have to you know re-establish themselves in, in in a new um new club a new culture you know identify new norms essentially so so that's why look, and i'm sure that is a there's a high level of dropout as a result of you know i mean some of those factors as well but yeah. but again for yeah that that's and that's again why i wanted to just to offer you know offer a snapshot paint a bit of a picture to say well look if we can engage these fellas if we can ask the right questions if we can give understand what goals they're trying to tick or what boxes they're trying to you know i mean mark off as as what they see as important then we can try and keep these fellas and you know engaged and involved for longer because you know, we're not getting that transition from school we are losing mm. you know i mean an element of that talent pool wherever it may be do other sports overseas whatever it might be um but yeah it's just trying to juggle that as you said that level involvement get them more involved in school and or transition them from school rugby into senior rugby because yeah that's that's critically important as you said for just the depth of pool and the strength and support of the game as well you know it's just mm. across the country so mm. well and it's something we can control I, you know you know previously touched upon the fact that you know and I, you mentioned it before but you know yeah the average age of a wallaby 
leaving after playing for Australia and going overseas has come down by about six mm. years over the last mm. decade. And, you know, it's, it's in, I think that's pretty obvious. Anyone that's been following the game has seen that. And, you know, just last year, what we, we had, a, you know, uh, I guess guys, and I don't want to single him out, but I point him out because he's, he's an example, is Isaac Lucas, who played in the, um, the mm. Junior Wallabies. And while most of his teammates are all playing in one of the Super Rugby franchises at the moment, he's, he left the Reds as now in Japan. And don't know why that reason was never given. And I don't think, you know, look, initially people were disappointed, but you can't blame a guy mm. wanting to go and, you know, see the world. Perhaps it's part of his journey is to go and actually see things first before coming back and then solidifying himself in the system. You, you just don't know. But it, it, obviously it's a reality. Those are uncontrollables. But what we can control are our schools, our clubs, and that, that period before they become young men and women and then embark on a professional career. And I suppose while I say that, the control that Rugby Australia has is limited because there are member unions that run the community game and the schools presumably are very protective of their competitions that have been running for years. So what, what are your observations on the level of control member unions or Rugby Australia or anyone can have over trying to sort of address some of the issues around you know, keeping these pathways aligned and helping, you know, making sure there is some sort of monitoring of players as they come through or just, just changing the environment. Yeah, look, and that's, I guess, the the most important thing, and, and again, I've spoken to a few other people, mostly in the UK, about that, you know, I mean, that idea of that element of control. I guess it's almost being comfortable or confident to almost relinquish that control. Like you said, you know, I mean, Isaac Lucas, you know, I mean, whatever, for whatever reasons. And that's, I guess that's for me, that's the biggest questions I want to ask. I'd love to know his reasons, as you said. Um, again, third parties are involved. Yeah, I mean, it was dealt through agents and whatever it might have been. But, but again, who knows? And did we ask the right questions of, well, as you said, are you going to exit now? And are you interested in coming back? Because then he could have went, as, as opposed to, well, I guess the publicised messy divorce that it was, it may not have been messy, as I said, we just don't know whether the right questions were asked. But but again, I've spoken to um, a bloke by the name of Matt Wilkie, who's actually an Aussie, who's head of the education in in, uh, in Ireland, uh, rugby education in Ireland. I've spoken to him quite a few times about it as well, and they actually embrace, they go, well, we're the fifth or sixth sport in the country, you know what I mean? So there's they don't have this element of control they actually embrace the fact and they create you know i mean communities practice and they go to other sports and just essentially encourage and grab other people from other sports that's really how they they've leaned on the likes of gaelic football and athletics Mm -hmm. and that's how they've developed their sevens program so it's almost you know get getting out of that fishbowl and focusing on that you know i mean solely solely and wholly this pathway is the only way to develop talent you know i mean yeah we don't want to lose players or, or have this force of control it's essentially we we need to make the game welcoming for players to exit and make it welcoming for when they come back um again i guess that's that's being almost trying to be a, a bit flippant or or, or or overly typical on it but but yeah look, we, we should be welcoming of players at the other day we want the best talent to be involved in the sport and to do that, then we need to offer them, you know, the, not not necessarily the best resources, but you know, be involved and interested in the game. Like I heard you talk to Adam Fryer before, and you know, I mean, it's it's that giving back. We we got to give them, yeah, you know, these players. You know, I mean, whatever level it might be, we've got to give offer them a way to engage and be interested in the game, at a at a way that they're interested in as well. I think yeah. Mm. COVID last year, and especially in Australia, you know, I mean, offered us a massive reset button. You could see that 
community rugby was missed you know i mean even right yeah. up to that senior level um like i said being based in brisbane i watched the um the, the queensland premier competition people were itching for it to get back so that's yeah. that's you know i mean that that is that desire for it to be there and i guess maybe there is that detachment from from senior um or representative rugby you know i mean a lot of people are trying to you know i mean grab um the players back oh when's when such and such going to play for you know I mean, ace uq whatever the club might be um I guess then you look at the other frameworks of the likes of AFL and they have such a, you know, I mean, excellent framework for, they get the, you know, again, I'll, I'll draw upon Brisbane, but you'll see Auskick programs where they've got Brisbane Lions coming down to schools, you know, I mean, just actually engaging or, you know, stre- you know having these links or, 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 or threads between them so that it doesn't seem to have that, you know, I mean, they're not out of touch from each other you know yeah. in mean, the community game to the senior game um so i guess that would be my big thing you know let's not look at it as control let's look at it as you know I mean, players will come and go but we want to create an environment whatever level it might be as i say right from juniors through to um junior representative to you know senior club right on through up there we've got to present it to and again i love you know sort of drawn upon it ask the right questions of what these fellas want from you know from whatever level they're playing in as well. The motive, looking at the motivations of young players in Australia, have you been able to make any comparisons, or, or is there any other data of similar age groups and their motivations in places like Ireland or New Zealand? Um, look, I've been really fortunate to help recently. So uh, a friend I used to coach with, a bloke by the name of Rob Riori, um, he's doing some work with West uh, uh, Rugby Club in Brisbane. Uh, he's trying to look at um, essentially the same thing. What what does a successful Colts program look like? So again, we weren't. The big thing I said to him, you know, I mean, just because it can be measured doesn't mean it should be measured. So we started the ask around. So we asked the likes of um, Matt Wilkie, who I mentioned before, Russell Earnshaw, um, who does a lot of work in the UK rugby circle there, again, about engagement. And and we found, uh, along with, um, as a Rob asked, a lot of um, academy coaches in Australia of what they're looking for. And again, it's, it's interesting to see that the academy coaches are looking for a certain type of player, but when it comes to a successful program, it's exactly what you touched on, what Barry mentioned before. It's, it's that you know, I mean, retention, participation. So, that that's ultimately what doesn't matter where it is. You know, I mean, if, if be it in Brisbane, Australia, or Bristol in England. You know, that's ultimately what you're looking for. At the end of the day, if you have a good sixteen, you know, I mean, year old player. You want to make sure the good sixteen-year-old player comes back when he's a seventeen-year-old as well. So it's it's that focus on how can we or or what can we do to offer them um yeah or offer them an engaging atmosphere or or what does the game look like to them and how should I adjust my coaching or adjust you know I mean how we practice uh, or, or or what what's meaningful to them during the week or on Sundays as well. So yeah. so yeah, it, it's it's fairly um comprehensive you know whoever you ask as i say blokes in ireland england um across australia as well again it, it really is that focus on it's it's the retention aspect and the engagement aspect so I, I, like like we talk about the talent um you'll get you know i mean generational players you'll get you know i mean good representative players 
but they can only be essentially galvanized or, or, or supported, you know, I mean, from a bigger talent pool. So, um, and that's when you get, as I say, the late bloomers are in a stronger competition or a stronger program if you've got these big talent pools as well. So, so yeah, for me, the, the big thing and, and, and a lot of the information that we've seen from both academy coaches in Australia and, and across the globe is, yeah, that, that focus on engagement, retention, mm. yeah, looking at different types of training, different, you know, how, however it might be, but yeah, just, just trying to keep these fellas involved in the game for longer is a big thing. So. It, it seems like a pretty basic concept, but, you know, I look at, say, the, the, the Super Rugby teams this year and I've sort of been, I'm not involved, I was going to do some draft rugby, but I sort of didn't have the time in the end to set up the team, but yeah. I, you know, I follow all that anyway, but you look at the, look at the, the, the Reds now and the Reds from all accounts are, looking strong because Brad Thorne has come in and he's really tried to bring players through and hold on to his team as opposed to the Waratahs who they look to be as inexperienced and as green as I've ever seen them in in, in history almost. It sounds probably mm. a bit over the top but you just look at the player list and the amount of debutants and young kids that are having to come through especially now that yeah. they've got injuries. Um, mm. And then you look at the New Zealand teams and obviously the Crusaders are the sort of the, the benchmark but even you know, Highlanders and the Chiefs, they just seem to have great retention of not just, you know, players, but also players that are coming from the level underneath, be it minor 10 or their academy. And, you know, whether or not there are models there that are not suggesting that we are, we just, just do what New Zealand are doing, but what lessons can be learnt from New Zealand or Ireland, who I know have also some really good academy systems in place, or even perhaps in England with, you know, some of their clubs that have also started to sort of move in that area you know because i think historically australia when we struggled in the 1970s one of the things we did was actually send coaches overseas to learn and get and a lot mm. of influence from places like uh, the welsh who were very good at the time so you know historically this is exactly what we have done is we have gone overseas to try and learn um perhaps more from coaches but i, I imagine players as well were also trying to look look for ways in which we could enhance what we're what we've got back in australia look and, and that's yeah a big thing for me as well is you know i mean coaching it's like we've touched on coaching as a craft you know what i mean i look at the most successful wallaby coaches and, and some of the successful coaches even within australia rugby is they've offered what the teams they've reflected and offered what the teams need at the time um look and that's where you look at there's, there's very different coaches as you said ultimately a lot the new zealand teams are very very strong but you've got mm. different styles of coaches involved with different teams you know you look at as I say Razor Robertson would be very different to the likes of Jamie Joseph but they offer and, and, and again they reflect and offer what is needed at the time um, like again for me you know I mean Rob McQueen probably you know I mean one of if not the most successful Wallabies coach we had you know recognized what was needed you know I mean it brought in a sort of business-like to it as well because he had these hugely creative players around him like the Largan and Greek and you know and and he set up a structure around them to let them play within whatever as well so the big thing the big thing I think I feel we can learn from um, a lot as you say and 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 there's been a lot of information out there as well from the likes of Ireland New Zealand um, and, and other countries like that is a greater player involvement um like again you hear razor robertson talks a lot of um he has a strong relationship with his captain whitelock was last year but then after that whitelock essentially runs the show you know i mean he'll ask a few hard questions whitelock will come back with a few answers and they adjust their training based on that but a lot more player ownership whereas we talked about before 
it's so heavily prescribed at a junior level again i'm not yeah. sure what it's like yeah that that these players are expecting it when they step into a professional atmosphere so it's hard and i'd love to talk to a few of the you know i mean the professional coaches in it at the moment of how they essentially they they crack that nut and to call mm. it that of yeah you know, we're getting these players step out of the school environments and again it, it might be better like you look at the success of the junior wallaby um season a couple of years ago um they had a lot more time a lot more camps um so the likes of jason gilmore probably offered them you know i mean asked them hard questions and they not just became acquainted with the systems he wanted but were able to express themselves whereas you know it may be in age grade environments in the past it was a bit more slapdash you know i mean we got six weeks to get this right this is how it's going to be um yeah. not sure but but you know pretty much what you're talking about in in regards to what ultimately what makes you know i mean these successful environments is and you look at eddie jones now as well you know he's he's talking about it again it's so much more player involvement um even the likes of senior camps yes they're dealing with you know i mean high profile highly professional players but but again it's it for me then the big thing about that is they're playing the game that represents them they're playing the game that they want to play so there's greater buy-in you know you made me just think there was a little anecdote i heard from a, a friend of mine who's involved in sydney grade rugby and he, he said a, you know the coach was was basically working with some juniors who had just come out of a school system and he said that with that, exactly what you were saying there was a very prescribed mindset amongst these kids as to they were trying to do basic moves but they were very narrow and tunnel vision across what they should or shouldn't be doing and where they should be standing and you know how a move should be done and whether it should be five six moves and they have to do that and they can't and there was there wasn't there didn't seem to be much uh you know sort of openness around just playing what's in front of you or, or trying mm. to sort of you know read the game or be a little more intuitive and to me that seems to be reflect we're seeing that at the top level when you yeah. know we can't close out a win against Argentina mm. twice in a mm. season or you know yeah. we're, we're playing against New Zealand and you know we, we we almost you know we have a shot to do a drop goal and everyone's like oh you know it's wet conditions that you know you can't do a mm. drop goal well I, you know t- 10 meters out that's probably the only yeah. thing you should be trying to do but you know whether or not that was players just not recognizing and having that sort of ability to 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 quickly assess a changing game because they're coming through a system that is just prescribing styles of play that have been hammered into them and yeah. you know that's something that i think i, I feel that that we're, we're seeing the end result of that at the top levels but i'm i'm very mm. curious to know what's happening at the the age groups and the juniors and whether that's sort of you know playing out there yeah well and again that's sadly again that you've hit the nail on the head i think we are where we are because of that and again that for me it's of no fault of well not uh, certainly of less fault for rugby australia but it, yeah it comes into and this is the problem we have a lot of community coaches out there who focus on as you said it's, it's driven by the results you know what i mean but mm. the problem is we look at um the style that we want to play we relate back to as you said you know what i mean whether it could go as far back as the Ella brothers or you know i mean certainly greg and larkin where as you said it was very front foot you know i mean on the on the game line you know i mean you know I mean, pa- quick passing and whatever and i guess yeah the the structured rugby and the, the speed of defense and there's a lot of other factors that have come into it but ultimately i think it, it's, uh, it's especially test rugby at the moment it's who's not going to lose as opposed to who's going to win um yeah. I, you hit the nail on the head I, I i'm certain i was one of the fellas 
in that game in Wellington last year, he was screaming, as you said, they're, they're in the middle of the pitch about 10 yards out. You could have thrown it over, let alone hit it, kick the drop goal. But um, yeah. I guess it, it's just, yeah, they were working on whatever's prescribed and whatever. But yeah, again, at the junior level, it's and it, it's, it's, it's a real bugbear to me as opposed to sending the players over the paint and, and it's from there on in, it's their job. It's they're looking to the sidelines, a lot of instruction, a lot of if we're here, we do this and whatever, as you said. yeah, And that's that's where um, a lot of the work by the fellas, as I say, Russell Earnshaw and a few other fellas in, in uh, the Magic Academy in England is yeah, they're, they're really reconceptualizing how the game's played in England. And I think we yeah. almost need that reset button in Australia as well of you look, you know, I mean, as I say, probably the you know you, the likes of your, your Curtly Beals and whatever, probably your last sort of flair players, even you know, I mean, Quaid and whatever, and mm-hmm. and possibly that lack of success with those style of players has made us go, well, yeah, you know, I mean, let's look for a different style of player. Not sure, yeah. not sure, or 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 again, you know, and touching on as you say, you've got five different teams, five different super teams in New Zealand who all play, you know, I mean, moderately different styles as well. Whereas mm. the Australian system's fairly sterilized. We, you know, I mean, we play fairly similar rugby. You know, I mean, fairly different shapes and sizes of players. So, yeah. are are we limiting? You know, I mean, the the possible options and the possible playing options that we have. Not sure. So yeah, there, I I think it's that over prescribed nature, certainly on a on a community level. Um, as you said, that focus of coaches um at at, at age grade level that. Uh, you must win to be successful when again the data that i found from my research and the questions that uh, the likes of rob's doing on this level four paper is well no the academy know what they want and know what they need they're not looking at your results they just want more players involved in rugby so they have a wider pool to you know to pull from so i guess i just don't think there's enough noise made about that or maybe the 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 picture's not painted loud enough um yeah by by the likes of rugby australia so so yeah well, I really appreciate you coming and having a chat about it, and I and I, I really hope that you can build on what you've started. What what's the sort of next plan in terms of the research you're doing? I don't even want to mention a PhD, but do you, hmm. you know, would you like to try and sort of see what you've you've started roll out towards, I guess, kind of more players, maybe even coaches, and do something that's really sort of, you know, hmm. far-reaching hmm. and examining this in Australia. Yeah, look, I'd love to, you know, as I say, that's where this this really was, you know, I mean, my first you know, step into research and again, Robbie Australia has been extremely supportive of it along with UQ and, and my advisors within it. Um, there, yeah, I, I've shared, you know, I mean, as much data and as much ideas and, you know, that, that snapshot that I talked about with the likes of Rugby Australia and coaches. But again, if, if there's any coaches or anyone listening to, you know, I mean, who wants to a bit more information around it, feel free to, to, to contact me. Um, yeah, look, I, I do want to um, roll on to a PhD. Rugby Union's yeah, my my first love. Like my wife still talks about, you know, I mean, how the happiest day of my life wasn't my wedding day or whenever my kids were uh, born. It was actually when Ireland beat Australia in the 2011 World Cup. Whatever. <laughs> Stop so, it. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> but um, yeah. I was, so like, I, was in, I was in New Zealand at the time, and we we actually missed that game because we went down to Queenstown oh, skiing, and the day yeah. bef- the day of. My dad and I kept going up the top of the ski um, on on the, uh, the, uh, the the machine, and there was a they're all obviously backpackers that are working at the skis, yeah. and there was this Irish guy there, and we were wearing our Wallabies kit, you know, sort of had a scarf and a beanie, and we're all we're just giving him, you know, a bit of bit of yep. uh, grill, <laughs> and you know, we just figured, oh, we'll trot it in, of course, and of course, mm. what happens happens, and the next day we go back to the ski slopes, and he was there 
and he oh. was as loud and proud as oh. ever. And good on him. He obviously yeah. sort of, you know, I don't think he actually thought it was going to be uh, the yeah. result that it was. But oh, yeah, no. was it? Yeah. It was. A t- I just after a while I said, "All right, let's just avoid that slope because I don't yeah. want to keep seeing that guy all day." <laughs> so we sort of, we sort of found another part of the mountain. But yeah, it was. A, it was a. I mean, what? A, what? A, for an Irish perspective, it would have been a great, a great moment in World Cup history. Oh no, definitely, definitely was. As I say, like the longer the game went on, it was like, oh, "Are we going to do it? Are we going to do it?" Oh, geez, we actually are going to do it. You know what I mean? But um, yeah, I'm sure if you went back to that same slope, that bloke would still be there talking about it. To be honest with you, but yeah. but yeah, it's probably, the, it's probably the, yeah. the the subject of another podcast. But I think the rise mm. of Irish rugby has been, and you know, we're talking about 2011. Gosh, mm. we need to go back to, uh, you know, a couple of years, a couple of years ago, and you oh, yeah. beat us. Uh, in a home series and, here so and high, high Irish interest. rugby has become you know another area another mm. case study that I think is very interesting to sort of pin down uh, and how interesting is it that a, an Australian David Nusifora has really been the main catalyst of all that as well how the systems and the things that he set up within it um, yeah it, it's, it's been what you know I mean massively driven by him and he's focused mm. on as you said the academies and the HQ program so yeah, you know, I mean, it, it has taken, as I say, his vision and what he's seen for it. I think he's been involved now with the RFU for probably 12 years or whatever it was. I'm not sure how long ago he left Australia, but yeah, yeah super interesting. That, as I say, it's taken an Australian to really sort out the Irish game, but yeah. Well, he came out of that Bromby system and, you know, that was probably the, you know, Eddie Jones and all these other people. So, you know, a, peak, a peak period of sort of, I think, IP in Australian rugby was really sitting between um, Queensland and, and the Brumbies for that sort of successful yeah. period. Excellent. Well, look, mate, thanks for joining us. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll definitely, you know, like, like to hear more perhaps down the line if, if my, if this podcast is still running. I don't know how sort of mm-hmm. yeah, what the end point is, but yeah, certainly if there's any follow up, uh, analysis or findings, that would be really interesting to sort of, you know, mull it over and, and, um, mm-hmm. yeah, or, or hear about any, any new, any new research or, or studies mm-hmm. that, are, that are on the horizon. But, uh, yeah, mate, thanks very much. No worries. No worries. And uh, yeah, mate, good luck this uh, this weekend with, with all the various teams. I assume you're a red supporter now, now that you've sort of. Oh, um, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. Adopted Queenslander. You got you got to support support the Reds or support the Maroons. It's as simple as that. So. Yeah. yeah otherwise, we'll throw you out, state. No. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> no. Good stuff, Johnny. Thanks very much. And uh, yeah, mate, all the best with uh, the future work. Good on you. Cheers, Tony. Thanks for that, Tano. If you'd like to know more about Johnny's research, you can go to his website called coachingthecoaches.net. He's also pretty happy to be approached, so just send me a message on any of the social media accounts and I'll see if I can put you in touch. Hope you enjoyed it. I think it's a really interesting area and and it's something I'd like to uh, perhaps revisit another time. Send me a message if you've got anything else you want to discuss. I'm hearing from some interesting people and uh, hopefully there'll be topics that we can cover in future episodes. Rugby season is certainly underway which means more people are coming out of the woodwork and there's a lot of comments coming through a lot of things happening in the news more importantly there's rugby on that we can pick apart so there's a lot happening and uh, I tend to stick around for a little while longer this is the gold digger podcast series a spin-off from the new feature documentary film gold digger the search for australian rugby which will be coming out very soon Brought to you by me, director and host, Matt Durren. And sponsored by whoever wants to reach out and pay me to have their name up in lights. Music is by Makeup and Vanity Set, sourced from musicbed.com. 
Check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash golddiggerrugby. Follow us on Instagram for pretty pictures and Twitter for banal chatter. Till next time, keep on digging.